Hi guys, welcome back to the podcast on YouTube and on your radio for podcast. Episode three, I just looked at, had a look at the last one and see where I kind of left off. Let me address something real quick because it's, it's annoying me right now. Um, I, look, I, I'm a very straight shooter. I'm very, very honest. Um, so I'm just going to give you some honesty right now. Um, and it's referenced the comment section. Now, it's not too bad on YouTube. Instagram is horrible, horribly toxic platform. And everybody out there is an expert on everything. Um, if you want to attack somebody on a social media platform, you, making a comment actually helps the platform. The more comments and the more engagement and the more the algorithm loves that. And you're actually helping the person. However... This guy don't care about the number of people who follow me. I'd rather have a small group of people who actually like what they see than a bunch of guys who just want to run their mouth. And I say guys because it's all men. Um, so I will block you in a heartbeat. If you want to run your mouth on YouTube or on Instagram, I won't even read. Some people write comments like that or like a paragraph. And I'll start reading it going, and they'll say, I think it's stupid that you, and I go, block, delete, gone. I don't even finish reading it because I, I, I don't want your toxic crap on my feed. And most people don't do that because they want the algorithm and they don't want to offend people. I don't care. Go be an asshole somewhere else. Don't care. Um, the uh, If you post anything on guns or, or God forbid, anything on clearing a room or any, like there's opinions out there everywhere. And I've said repeatedly when I talk about equipment, I say, this is my opinion. Now, it's an opinion based on a very long career. However, it's just still an opinion. Okay. So you can disagree with me. I don't care. That's fine. But when you just want to be nasty and disrespectful and talk garbage, then I just block you. I don't care. And we've raised, we, we're in a society right now where like people will email me, I can't believe you blocked me. And I, we have, we have a, we've created a society now where I'm creating content for free. I'm not even monetizing off this. So I'm creating content for free, taking my time to do it. And there's Vinnie Barkin. Um, and you're upset that you can't talk trash to me on my platform anonymously. This is, this is what we've created. So you want to leave a nasty comment? Go ahead. It just helps me identify dipshits that I need to get rid of. Um, okay, enough said on that. The um, All right, last time we, we kind of wrapped up. I had a couple of questions that I'm going to hit real quick. And uh, striking a balance between professional distance and camaraderie as a leader. That's a great question, actually. It's a tough one to answer because it's very, very personality-based. I will tell you that me, as a non-commissioned officer, in the ranger wing, attached to the infantry to go to Lebanon, I was very standoffish, did not, um, I, I think going out drinking and partying with the guys, you're compromising your integrity and you, you, you're, you're, it's too familiar, right? Now you can be friendly without being a pushover. You can be strict without being an asshole. And I think you gain that credibility by being good at your job and being ethical and people make mistakes and that's okay. Um, but I personally did not, as an NCO in the infantry in Ireland and in the infantry in the United States Army, I did ne I never went, uh, I wasn't a drinker anyway, but I never went out drinking 
uh, with guys. I just didn't go over to people's houses and go party. And you were compromising yourself by doing that. And as a team sergeant, I didn't do that either. I didn't have parties at my house. I didn't have, I, and I was very, very friendly and on good terms. And I'm still friends with a lot of the guys who work for me on my team. But that doesn't mean we go party together. I'm just not that guy. And that's probably a personality thing. Um, so it's, I think you strike that balance be, between professional distance and camaraderie by being good at your job and being a good leader. Guys want a good leader. They want somebody strong in charge of them, even if they don't know it at the time. When I was, and I'll get to this later, when I was an infantry squad leader, the first sergeant used to send me troubled soldiers who were getting in a lot of trouble. And I would either make or break them. I would turn them into super soldiers or I'd kick them out of the army, one or the other. There was no compromise with me. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about that later on when I talk about my infantry time in the United States Army. But that was a great question. It's an individual thing, but there's a line you do not cross because people will throw it back in your face. Um, least favorite season to train. Summer. I, I, I Look, I've been all over the world and I've trained in some really, really hot places. As I get older... That brutal heat. I was in Texas in July and uh, we were teaching personal security and the classroom portion was inside and then we got outside and I was like, oh my God, it is brutally warm here. So I would rather the cold now than the heat and it used to be the other way around. <laughs> Somebody asked me, how tall are you? I am six foot five. Believe it or not. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm five seven. And, and somebody else asked, um, did you bulk up an SF or were you always a small guy? So here's how physical fitness went in special operations. This is across all special operations. Before 9-11, guys were big monsters, big, huge guys, worked out all the time. Might have been some vitamin S going in the veins at that point too, right? And later. The problem is when the global war on terror kicked off and you're humping up and down mountains in Afghanistan... That's not the best physique for you, right? These big guys, you take reconnaissance missions. These big, huge monsters, they drink too much water. They eat too much food. And if they get shot, God forbid, you can't medevac them. I can't pick up a 250-pound guy. I can, but I can't move very far with him. They're huge. And um, when you, like I hit targets in Iraq, and we hit target after target after target. I, I remember like running and jumping building to building me and Mike Glover in in, in, in Baghdad and, and fighting all night long and hitting targets, running around with kit on, a body armor, 50 pounds of gear. Big, huge guys, not so much. You have to be wiry and physically fit with good cardio and good upper body strength. And that's where the whole CrossFit thing came in. And you saw guys in SF and Delta Force operators shrink down and become more, more functional fitness, um, good upper body strength, because you're climbing buildings in some cases, uh, good cardio, you're going all night with no food, and a little bit of water, and just good functional fitness. And that's the way it's always been. I've never bulked up. I've seen guys bulk up the massive, and then a couple of months later, they shrink back down because they don't get the vitamin S anymore. Um, it never appealed to me. I think it looks stupid. I'm short. Little short guys who are just monsters. It looks weird. Um, but I've seen these big, huge, bulky guys who couldn't fit through the door in Afghanistan in these little mud huts, right? Um, it's not mission enhancing because I'm not fighting with you. If I, if I hit a target in Iraq and somebody puts their hands on me, oh, you voted, man. I, I, I'm not arm barring you in the house. Not what I do. Not a cop. 
I'm a, you're, you're, you put your hands on me, you're a combatant, right? So big, huge, bulky guys. It doesn't really help that much, in my opinion. Um, you need good functional fitness, good cardio, good upper body strength, and, and, and uh, CrossFit is good for that, okay? Um, the difference between SF in Ireland and SF in America, that, that's a, that's kind of loaded question. And I think I'll get back to it later on because after I go through the whole thing, it may be obvious, but the guys, very similar guys, uh, the mission obviously much, much different, right? America deploys worldwide and it deploys to war. Ireland's very focused internally inside their own country and you're dealing with a government that's very, very reluctant to let you do anything, okay? Now, the Ranger Wing in Ireland has come a long way since I left. Um, very close-minded when I was there. Um, I'm trying to line up a couple of guys who were in the Ranger Wing with me back then for a podcast and I think it'd be super interesting. But... Similar mindsets, similar guys, um, much more narrowly focused training there than in the American Army, right? Because SF in the American Army is not, um, for the most part, a direct action unit. It's it's a training unit. You go all over the world and you train indigenous forces, and we'll talk about that later on. Okay, so that was the big, uh, big difference. All right, so deployed as an NCO from the Ranger Wing to uh, Lebanon the second time. Dealt with, <laughs> didn't like my officer, imagine that. My officer, my platoon leader, was a, he was a dirtbag. And um, like the, the guy I talked about in the first trip to Lebanon was actually a good officer, very intelligent, very physically fit, uh, personable guy. He just was caught up in this culture. The guy in the second one was garbage, right? So he actually... Let's talk about alcohol. God, this is a loaded subject. Let's talk about alcohol because it kind of leads into this next story. Um, alcohol is woven into the fabric in Ireland, right? And you can disagree with me all you want. That's fine. But it, it, it's, it's kind of, it's woven into every kind of social function in Ireland, whether it's a wedding, it's a, it's a wake, it's, it's, you know, whatever it is, there's alcohol there. And it's a very accepted thing. And it probably comes from being freaking, you know, under the thumb of the British for a thousand years almost, right? And and it was an escape for poor people. Whatever the reason is, it's very, very part, very, very much part of the culture in Ireland. And I, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. And I'm not anti-alcohol at all. But I've seen... um I, I, I've seen a lot of things happen with alcohol. So, you know, growing up, I, I probably, I think I sat in a bar and drank my first pint of beer when I was like 14. We were out picking potatoes, and after we were done, the farmer took us all to the uh, their bar, and I could barely see over the bar, and I got a pint, and it was a big deal for me, right? Because it's kind of woven into that culture, right? So when you can sit in a pub and get a pint, and, and not not a lot of, ID checks going on. So if you looked like you were supposed to be 18, but if you're 16, you're pretty good, right? Now, I drank a little bit. The first drink I, drink I ever, first alcohol drink I ever took was, God, this is so stereotypical, but somebody handed me a bottle of whiskey and I took a big drink of it because I thought it all tastes like Coca-Cola. And I felt it burn all the way down to my stomach. And then I felt it come back up and I puked my guts up. It was disgusting. It's like drinking gasoline. It was awful. Um, 
And then one time we, we drank pachin, which is uh, moonshine, homemade at, at, at school one time at lunchtime. And oh my God, it, it was bad. Um, but then it becomes part, very much part of the culture. Now, I had no money, right? So we broke into pubs and stole beer and all that kind of stuff. But in the army, again, military, young single man, a lot of drinking going on. So when you go to Lebanon, the drinking doesn't stop. Now, in the United States Army, there's general order number one. When you're deployed, there is no alcohol. Now, of course, people drink and they smuggle drink in, and SF guys especially drink. But because you outlaw it, you drive it on the ground, that it's much less in your face. In Lebanon, there was massive effort to let guys drink beer. Um, now, there was the main base where the the camp headquarters was and then there was ops and checkpoints all out uh, you know and there was no drinking allowed on on the ops and checkpoints there wasn't supposed to be right if you wanted to drink you had on your day off you had to come back to the camp and drink beer and it was a two drink minimum you know we joked the first one and the last one are the two they counted the 10 in the middle didn't count right so it is a good way for guys to blow off steam however alcohol is like one of the only drugs that amplifies aggression, right? And when you get people that are, you know, working hard, um, kind of in, in that atmosphere, and they're away from home, sometimes that turns out badly. Um, there was quite a few suicides in Lebanon, and alcohol was involved. And it was people away from home, they probably had problems before they deployed, but you pour alcohol on that, it just does not turn out well. Now, what, what would happen is, at least when I was there, it may probably has changed. When I was there, an armored vehicle would drive up to your OP and go around the OPs and the checkpoints and they'd pick up everybody who was off that day because you, you were there like three days on and one day off, whatever. They would bring him in to the uh, canteen at the headquarters. You'd get out, you'd disarm your weapon, you'd unload your weapon very responsibly, you'd put it back in the guard room and then you go get hammered. <laughs> um, and, and guys played bingo and they sang songs and all very typical. And it was all fun and games, right? Um, I drank a little bit on my first trip as a private. I never drank on my second trip. Again, a non-commissioned officer drinking in front of men and losing that. I, 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 I barely went in there at all because it turned in, there was a lot of fighting went on, a lot of, yeah, it was just stupid. But guys would go in and get hammered. And then they come out and get their weapon back. And then they'd load it and they're hammered. And they get back in the armored car and go back up to the OP. And there was incidents where guys would open fire on the Israeli OP across the way. Not that smart to shoot at the Israelis. Um, and a lot of stupid shit happened, right? A lot of fighting. Guys would get their ass beast freaking because you have all this bottled up aggression over months and months and months. And then you pour alcohol on it and guys just do. It's very, it's very, interesting and i saw this a while ago alcohol it amplifies aggression that's absolutely true and it's true in my case that's why i don't drink but it also it's not like people don't know the consequences right so you if you talk to a drunk person and say hey man do not you know kick in that chop window you'll get arrested they understand the consequences but they don't care now that's the point right if we were all the same boring person There'd be no point in drinking, right? So it can be very good and it can be very positive, but I think you kind of got to know your personality. Me, angry drunk. Angry. Brings up aggression. That's why I don't drink. Um, so, um, 
guys would get in a lot of trouble drinking. Now, I talked to a guy a while later, like years later, that, I, that was in the Irish Army with me, and he said it wouldn't have even been an option to say no drinking in Lebanon. It would be so, such an outlandish thing. People wouldn't go. I mean, it was a volunteer basis to go. They probably wouldn't go. Um, but they tried to control it as best they could. Um, but it did cause a lot of problems. And I've been in a lot of fights. I've been in a lot of bar fights, like until the age of 25, when men start maturing. Between the ages of 14 and 25, I was probably in 50 freaking bar fights. And that's a very, very conservative estimate. Um, and that's that aggression with alcohol. And that's why I, I stopped. I, I, I'm like, I, I can't do this anymore. So I also have a history of it. My old man had, had alcohol problems and it scared me. So, you know, my kids have never seen me drink. And it, it's almost like it skips a generation began. My kids don't drink, thank God. But, um, I, I mean, drinking in moderation, there's nothing wrong with it. But it's when it gets out of control. And even when I was in you know, the Irish Army, I was drinking a lot. Not a lot, but here and there, I, I, it would scare me because I, I'd seen what it does firsthand and it would steer me away and I would be like, I'm not doing this anymore. Um, I remember teaching in a rock climbing course for the army in, in the south of Ireland, beautiful place, very tourist area. And we were at party and a drink. I was an NCO on the ranger wing and I was attached to this rock climbing course of the army running as an instructor. And, uh, we were out one night partying and, and it was awesome. And the next day, I remember sitting on a, on a, on a, a, a rock ledge, tying off a belay system and looking at it and, and not being able to recognize if the knot was right because my brain was still soaked in alcohol. It's funny, but it's not because people could get hurt. And I say, like, I can't do this anymore. Anyway, I don't know how I got on that tirade. Um, the alcohol piece in, in Lebanon, it was a big part of being there. I guess, you know, there, there was, there was a lot of fun and it was, it could be good, but it, it got out of control. And I remember being on a very remote OP as a private and the NCOs allowed booze on the OP because guys were like, Oh, we're only getting to go in every three or four days. And, you know, if we can have some beers at night and all that. And they reluctantly, allowed it even though it was against our better judgment and guys would get drunk and the aggression start coming out they start arguing and and then it's very hard for that nco to discipline them because they'll just throw it back in your face if you do anything i'll just tell them you allowed alcohol right and i've seen that firsthand so again as a leader never ever compromise your integrity if you do anything unethical immoral or illegal the people will throw it back in your face and you lose the ability to discipline people all right um, I can't even remember why I got on that whole thing. But anyway, I, I NCO attached to the infantry, uh, went to Lebanon, same kind of stuff. Oh, that's how I get on. This officer that I talked about was at the canteen one night and he drove back to the checkpoint and, uh, he came back in the armored car after getting hammered and he got out and he heard shooting in the local village and he grabbed two privates off the checkpoint. And he went to investigate into this really dangerous village. Um, and I found out about it. I lost my shit, but it, it was, it was known by the chain of command. Nothing happened to him. Didn't even get disciplined, right? He could have got people killed. So, um, not a good showing for the officer corps. Came back from that one. Uh, some of the classes I did, some of the education I got in the Ranger Wing stands to me today. And a lot of it I used 
in SF for years and years and years. Because when you're a young soldier, the stuff that gets ingrained in you, it stays longer somehow. Um, and that's why when young soldiers come in the military, if they have a good squad leader, they'll generally stay. If they have a shitty squad leader, they'll generally get out. And I've seen that time and time again. Um, but stuff like when we were... The, the, the general fieldcraft, not the company, but fieldcraft is a general military term for all the stuff like patrolling and uh, patrol bases and all, all these types of, of skills in the field. Um, the general fieldcraft was really, really good because, and that's, that's kind of, that's true of a lot of European countries, uh, a lot of European snipers because they, they do a lot of field craft and they don't shoot as much as the American military or the facilities, right? Or maybe the budget for ammo, whatever. I, I, I think sometimes we lack the field craft in America and, and we, we put too much emphasis on our gear. Um, but the general field craft, the patrolling, the patrol bases, the ambushes and all that kind of stuff, stuff I learned there stayed with me throughout my whole career. Um, we would, and this, there's stuff I never learned in the American Army or in SF. Like we would patrol and on our person would be enough stuff for a couple of days, for like three days. So if I drop my pack, I still retain my sidearm. I retain my radio, rations, map, compass, um, ammo for my rifle, just enough that I could, I could lose that pack and I could, I could fight for a couple of days. I, I, did that my whole career, right? The way I packed my ruck, I did my whole career. The way a lot of things, I learned to navigate there. I went to, to a, a basic seaman's course with the Navy and learned boat handling and knots, which was really beneficial. I went to a method of instruction course. The first course I did when I when I got selected and I, I started the qualification course, I went to a method of instruction course, which taught me how to teach. And a big part of that was public speaking. And I was terrible at public speaking. I remember the first class I ever had to teach in front of a small group, I was physically ill before I went up there. I couldn't, I, like it really, really bothered me. And then you do it once and you're forced into it. And you do it once and you're like, okay, that wasn't too bad. And do it again, you're a little less nauseous. You might only throw up twice, not five times. And then you do it again and you're a little bit, and it just gets a little better and a little better. And it always, um, I always found it, strange that in in sf like a, a green beret's primary duty is to teach people especially overseas but you don't go to an instructor's course in in special forces here until you you've had a cup five years on a team and you come back to be an instructor i always thought it should be part of the q course so when i graduated in ireland the first course they sent me one the method of instruction i don't know why but it was very smart and it really helped with public speaking and self-confidence the first time I ever did it, I remember they gave me a class to teach and they had me on a podium and they had a microphone sitting on the podium, big mic like this, and it was filmed it. And I was so nervous that I was banging on the table like this the whole way through and I didn't realize it. And at the end, they showed the video and you couldn't hear anything I said. And I was like, okay, it's really beneficial to watch yourself. It's horrible, but it's, it's beneficial. So that helped me. And these are the things that build confidence in, in, in young people is forcing them in to do something they don't want to do. And then it turns out, well, and all these barriers they, they'd falsely put up. Um, they, it shows them that they're not real. They're just self-inflicted. And if you screw it up, that's great. Let's do it again and let's fix it. And that's what teaching's about. And that's what mentoring and, and 
educating people is about in my book. So I did that, did like rock climbing courses, did, did, uh, of course I did all the regular training and all the regular stuff and shooting and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it was great. I got a great military education there. I love the ranger wing. Um, but I'd gotten to the point where I kind of done everything and I was getting a little restless to be honest. And it's funny because in the American Army, you, I remember being in the Ranger Wing and we were at an Army shooting competition in Ireland and they had like a colonel from the embassy, an American colonel from the embassy that came and he was in class A's and of course he's got ribbons up over his shoulder like he, there's no room for any more ribbons. And so we were laughing because somebody said, that's a corporal in the American Army. <laughs> and I just thought it was funny because in America you get ribbons for everything. And, and that's a pet peeve of mine. We'll talk about awards later on. But in the Irish Army, you got a ribbon for being in Lebanon, right? And then you got, uh, I think, a number one on it if you went did a second trip or a two or whatever. And then you had, I had a, a marksmanship badge for shooting. I had a ranger tab. I had jump wing, parachute wings. And I think that was it. I think I was stacked. People were like, oh my God, you're like a warrior. <laughs> it's crazy. So I'd done all the things. I'd been to, par oh, let me talk about military freefall. Um, so the, the Irish army, a very small army, right? And a very defense forces kind of mindset, not a, not a expeditionary force, right? But we had to be parachute qualified. And, uh, so we went in the American army, when you go to static line, static line is the one where you hook up and you jump out. When you go to static line, uh, parachute school, you do two weeks of ground training and then you do one week of jumping. And in the first two weeks, they do a lot of PT and they, they make you do PLFs, they're called parachute landing falls where you jump off this bench and you do the roll and they, they put you on this tower where they drop you and they have you. And it's just two weeks of ridiculous training. <laughs> and you're more likely to get hurt there than you are jumping. So it was two weeks of ground training in America and a week of jumping. In the Irish Army, it was about two hours of ground training. It was, hey, I remember they pulled the parachute out and they showed us the deployment sequence. They um, they read, basically, it's like pre-jump in America. They, they read, hey, if you land the power lines, do this. If you land the water, do this. If you land in, in freaking um, in the trees, do this. And then they said, hey, get on that bench and do some PLFs. And we did some PLFs for like an hour. And they're like, all right, get in the freaking plane. Let's go. <laughs> and it was fine. It's static line. It's gravity. We drop, we push pallets and they land fine. It was absolutely ridiculous when I went to the American Army. did two weeks of ground training for such a simple task. It really was. Um and we'll talk about that whole thing later again because that that's another pet peeve of mine. The static line thing it's it's um it's a Second World War infiltration technique. Um, and then we did we went on and did free fall stuff, and we did like a, a three second delay, a five second delay, a ten second delay, and then we did uh, what's called the unstable exit where you had to kneel. And I did it out of a helicopter. You had to kneel and reach underneath your your leg and grab your pant leg and go out head first and go unstable you had to prove that you could exit unstable and then get stable so you had to go you had to hold your leg for like seven seconds i think where you're just going blue green blue green blue green blue green blue green and then after seven seconds you had to go into a stable position get stable and pull um and then you did a dive exit and then you were like qualified 
but there was no badge or anything for it. So um, static line and then uh, free fall uh, was part of the thing. Dive school, I didn't go to sniper school. I went to, did a lot of CQB, um, did a lot of rock climbing, did a lot of confidence training, which is, you know, security on steep ground, rock climbing, rappelling, all that kind of stuff, uh, kind of rope master, jump, uh, you call rappel master school, they call it in America, uh, and a bunch of other stuff. But I got to the point where I was like, okay, what's next? What is next? And I was like 25, 24 probably. Um, so there was, there was a couple of senior surgeons in the unit that I had a lot of respect for. Um, my, my team leader, so you're talking about a sergeant and four corporals, basically. In the American Army, that would be equivalent of a E7 and like a sergeant first class and four staff sergeants, right? On a team, a great team, awesome group of guys, great leadership. Um, but, one of those senior guys, a guy called Terry, who I've been in contact with, I'm going to podcast Terry. Terry approached me and two other guys one time. And again, Terry was looking for a way out. He was also looking to supplement his income because we weren't paid that well. We were we were still kind of struggling, but I'm a young single man, so I don't care. Um, So Terry approaches me and he's like, hey, I have this idea. So we all went to a bar one night. And we sat down in a quiet corner and he laid this idea to start a survival company. This Fieldcraft Survival, basically, but it was 30 years ago. And he talked about teaching some of the skills that we learned in the military to people. Now you're talking, no firearms, it wasn't a firearms thing. You're talking about rock climbing, repelling, land navigation, survival, um, stuff like that. And there was no outdoor industry really in Ireland at the time. You're talking now 92. Um, and I love the idea. And it, because I was attracted to, I like teaching and it was something that I wanted to do that I could see myself doing in the future. Um, so I was like, I'm in. The other two guys bowed out. They didn't want to do it. Uh, but I was in, right? So me and Terry started a company called Survival Outdoor Pursuits with SOP, military thing, right? And you know, we had the skills and we had the teaching ability. When it comes to business, we had no idea what we were doing. We were making it up as we went along, right? Much as I am today. Um, so no social media, no way to get the word out there. Uh, but we built brochures. We did all this. And I dropped two grand. We dropped two grand in it each. And... We bought climbing equipment, bought helmets, bought harnesses, and we, we started taking groups out. We took a couple of groups out, and we took some corporate leadership out. We took a, a, a bunch, of, we did a youth camp. We, we did a bunch of stuff, and it was kind of fun, and it supplemented the income. Now, it was like one weekend a month, and it wasn't that much. And it's difficult to do outdoor stuff sometimes in a country where it rains all the time. I remember one August great best month in ireland right august we had we had a bunch of groups booked and and you can do a lot you can hike in the rain and sometimes the the wetter and shittier is the better um but you can't rock climb uh, and and you can't do some other stuff right but i remember we had a bunch of groups booked in august and it i remember at the end of august hearing on the news that it had rained every single day in august and i was like oh good lord we also ran into all kinds of obstacles we tried to go to there was these grants available for you know small businesses to get started and all that and we went there 
And because we were Irish, they wouldn't give it to us. If we were immigrants, they wouldn't give it to us. And they told us to go to Board Falcher, which is the, the tourist board. And they, we went there and then they wouldn't give it to us. They wouldn't help us either. And then we rented a four by four vehicle to get up in the mountains and stuff like that. And I remember I went to rent it and they wouldn't let me rent it because I had to be 26, I think. And I was only 25 and I'd been driving for like five. I, I remember saying I've been driving for five years with no claims. And they said, you have to be driving six years with no claims. So it, it was like just obstacles, obstacles. And it was extremely frustrating. Um, so at that time that, that we, we were getting, we were walking through it and, and it was, and again, we were still in the army. It was not the only thing we were doing. It was to supplement our income and have some fun. And maybe it would turn into a viable career, maybe down the line. But at that time in Ireland, I think we missed our window because right now or years later, people are telling me that that kind of stuff is booming in Ireland. And, and what a country to do climbing and all that, you know, hiking, beautiful place. And people just don't have the knowledge. So at that time, the commander who'd been in the range wing for a couple of years was actually really good. He was, some guys had a problem with him. I actually liked him and I, I thought he was a good commander. He, we were, we, we were based in this little, jail cell called the special jail complex in in the car camp right and it was old and it was tiny and we didn't have room for pt and next to us there was a, a tank unit and they had a massive motor pool and they weren't using it so that commander called the formation he was trying to annex some of their land and he wouldn't give it up so he called the formation like three o'clock in the morning one time and he got the whole unit there and they pulled the fence up and moved it back 50 feet and redid the fence. And they went nuts. The tank unit went nuts. And the commander of the tank unit complained to army headquarters and said he was afraid to go to sleep at night because he was afraid he'd wake up with a fence around him. <laughs> but that's the type of commander you want. Um, but I, I, some guys didn't like him, but I, I thought he was a good commander. But he was replaced with this next guy. And the first guy had rattled so many cages and done, they put this other guy in who was a complete yes man. That was him. Like it, 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 he was going to toe the line on everything. And somehow he found out about this business that me and Terry had. And he called both of us in and said, you're not allowed to do that. And it well, actually, you're not allowed to have your own business, which was not the reg. And he said, you either have to drop the business or get out of the unit. And that was the ultimatum. After spending years there, especially Terry, he was there. He's a senior guy. He'd been there. I was probably there four years at the time. And he was probably there seven. And me, I'm going to get Terry on. We're going to talk about this whole thing. So, um, so he gave us an ultimatum and gave us like a day to think about it. And we went away and we thought, and we were like, screw it. We just leave the unit. So me and Terry went and talked to the, uh, kind of like the weapons school in Akura and said, Hey, you're looking for two very experienced instructors. And they were like, hell yeah. So we put paperwork in to transfer over there and get out of range wing. And somebody in army headquarters got a hell of it. And they were like, what the hell is going on here? And they intervened. So then they were like, no, you're staying in the range wing, right? The, the unit's under strength. So I, I was just like, I'm getting out. I'm done with this BS. And I was like, I'm just getting out of the army because I don't want to deal with it. And I have a bad temper. It takes a lot for me to lose my temper, but I have a bad temper. But 
I was like, I'm just going to get out. And in the Irish Army, you could buy yourself out of your contract, right? So I signed up for three years. Boom, did it. Signed up for three more. Did it. Signed up for three more. And um, I was a year into that. So I was seven years in the Army. And I had two more years on my contract. But you put in an application for discharge by purchase. And they add up how much money it costs to train you. And they bill you. It's weird. I know. In American military thing, it's that that is so strange. But... Um, and, but the, the thing is, the courses I had done were not billable courses. Sniper course and rappelling and rock climbing. And it, it was courses like if they made, if you went to like chef school or something that was like a, a credible educational thing on the outside, apparently, right? So they added up mine and they charged me 1500 pounds, I think, which was a decent bit of money. And they, they billed me and I dropped the money and I was out in like six weeks. I'm gone. Somebody, no commitment at all. So when I dropped my paperwork to leave and I had to wait six weeks, the Ranger Wing treated me like garbage. They, and this was very, very standard for anybody who dared to leave back then. Um, I ran, I ran into a guy in uh, New York one time, a guy called Porg Melvin, who was the nicest guy you'll ever met. And he tried to leave as well. And they treated him the same way. So they had me, um, cleaning toilets, scraping up grass out of the concrete, like any shit job they could do. They had me doing just as a, just as a slap in the face. Now, the guy who orchestrated that was the company sergeant, right? Who was like a first sergeant in the American army. A guy called Joe Murphy, who was the absolute dirtbag piece of shit, right? Sorry for my language. Um, this guy was universally hated by everybody in the unit and he had some serious personal issues going on. But again, we had a sergeant major, but he was kind of retired. He did, he was there, but he didn't do anything. And we had officers. There you go, officers. You want to be a leader? Take charge of this piece of garbage that you know everybody hates. And it's just a horrible, horrible, um, leader. How about you take charge of him? Um, but he was allowed to do this. So, uh, you know, the range wing, you talk about leadership. The, the officers wrote evaluation reports on us that we never got to see. So it was purely their opinion, right? When you when you write an evaluation on somebody, you should show it to them and you should talk about it. And here's the t- how we're going to correct these things and all that kind of thing. They would write evaluations on us and we were never allowed to see them. Now we would be on duty. So we would break into their offices and read our evaluation reports. That's the only way we got to see it. And there was stuff in there that was just wrong. Okay. Um, so there's another leadership thing that, that I skewed into. But this guy, Joe Murphy, was a piece of garbage. And he is a stain on that unit's reputation. Um, just a horrible piece of garbage. But um, so they treated me like crap. And I, I just couldn't wait to get out. Now, when I left that unit, I had tears rolling on my eyes. I, I had this massive sense of loss. All my friends were there. That was my career. Um, uh, but, it, you know, when I, it, it's funny how things work out because like I said on the first podcast, everything I did led to me here right now. So getting out for me was actually a really good thing. And, um, but at the time it, it was devastating and it was horrible. And all these, all these things that veterans go through where they have this loss of sense of purpose and all that. I never had that in the American army because I spent so long, but I had it in the Irish army, right? When I got that blow, when I walked out one day and I'm like, okay, I'm done. I'm never allowed to come back here. Um, it, it was pretty devastating. Now, it, that moved me into that chapter where 
I was between armies and it was probably this it, it it was tough but it was probably provided the most growth and the most kind of building who I am today in that window it wasn't in the army it was in that window between armies because it was a horrible horrible time um so we I got out and we pursued this this civilian company full time we took a few groups out and it kind of waned and we tried this and we tried that and we tried and it was just roadblocks and roadblocks. We did this thing one time and again, alcohol is kind of a big part of the culture in Ireland, but we did this thing called the pub challenge and Terry came up with this idea. It was a great idea. And what we would do, we'd build this poster, put it up in the pub and we'd have sign up sheets for it. And you signed up. Uh, when you signed up, we would pull up on like Saturday morning with a bus and we load up like 50 people in the bus who signed up for this one day kind of class we go out we do rock climbing we do land navigation we do freaking uh repelling we do a bunch of survival stuff a bunch of fun stuff we'd video everything and then we'd bring you back to the pub after it was all done we throw the video on the on the big screen everybody's drinking beer and all and people loved it people loved the idea and i remember we put the poster up in one pub there in newbridge near the Curra, and I went back two days later to check to see if anybody signed up and I couldn't find a poster. And uh, the barman said, hey, it's sold out. Like within like the first night, every slot was filled. And I was like, this is awesome. But they refused to take any deposits for us, right? Somebody's drunk going, I'll do it if you do it. And they're all signing up, right? So the morning we were supposed to pick up like 50 people. We pulled up outside with like a bus, a big bus. And it was pouring rain. Nobody showed up. And it was like, God, you know, and it was just one thing after another, after another like that. It was very, very, very tough. So I got to the point where I was like, I can't do this anymore. And I sold my car and I bought a Eurail pass to go backpacking around Europe. And I threw a backpack on my back and I just went, I, I just took off, um, and I jumped on a Euro pass is, is awesome. And I'm sure it's, it's, it's still available. It's very expensive, but it, uh, you, you get one ticket and you can go anywhere on a train in Europe you want. And so I bought my ticket, got my backpack and I jumped on a, tr I jumped on the ferry and I took the ferry over to, uh, uh France. And then I just went backpacking around Europe for like six freaking weeks. And I was, you know, but my buddy was like, oh, he's, you're trying to find yourself. And I laughed it off, but I actually was, I was trying to figure out what the hell I was doing with my life and what the next step was. Because up until this point, I, I'd been in the army seven years. It was very, very structured and it very abruptly finished. Um, so I went everywhere. I went all over the place and I, um, I saw a lot of European, I went to a lot of museums, went to a lot of freaking battlefields, I went to Normandy, I, I, I went to a bunch of stuff that I'd always wanted to see. And it was cool because if you didn't want to pay money for a hotel or a hostel, um, you could just go to the train station and look at the train schedule and go, okay, that train goes to Paris tonight and comes back in the morning, I'll just go, I'll sleep on the train, I'll come back and I'll wake up in the same spot and I'll be on the train for for, uh, for like 12 hours. Um Really, really cool experience. Nothing weird. Didn't get mugged. Didn't get robbed. Um, stayed in a lot of shady places. But it was really, really cool. So, again, everything happens for a reason. That trip happened because 
I got out of the range wing because I made, I got out of the army because I made a kind of hot-headed decision. But it's on that trip in Europe where I met my wife, right? And um, I've been married for 27 years. So four kids. So um, as part of this whole touring thing, I went up into Sweden, went up this, near Stockholm, and a buddy of mine from the army was married to a Swedish girl. I went and visited, and that's where I met my wife. And um, <laughs> yeah, the, the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life. And then I remember she asked me, we were just talking, and she asked me about, so tell me about your favorite guns. And I was like, you don't have to make small talk of me. It's okay. And she was like, no, I'm really interested. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this chick's a little weird, but okay. <laughs> now, um, awesome woman. So I, I, I met her there. Then um, I didn't go out or anything, but I, I kept in touch with her. I went back to Ireland, and then the company I was running kind of folded and and kind of fell apart, right? And I'll talk in depth to Terry about that because that was, that was devastating to Terry, but I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't face, I, I couldn't work and just get roadblocks and get punched in the face and punched in the face and punched in the face time after time. I was driving a taxi at that time. I was doing all kinds of work in security. Like people have asked me, how did you go from special ops in Ireland to special ops in America? And it's not like a freaking black helicopter came and picked me up. There was a 10 year gap between those two things with a lot of hardship. And a lot of freaking hard times. And this was part of them. And I, I, I think I was probably uh, suffering from a little bit of depression. I was just down. I, I was like, I got to do something. A, a, a large portion of my family had moved to America, right? Most of them had green cards. My brother was in America running a business in New York, running a construction company. So... I was like, I'll just go to America. Screw it, right? Now, I didn't have a green card and I have a visa. When you went from Ireland at that time, I don't know what it's like now because so many immigrants went from Ireland and overstayed their visa. They'd go on a holiday visa and then she wouldn't come back and they just walk off the books. You had to get a letter from an employer to say that you had a job in Ireland to come back to in order to get a holiday visa. Now, I got a letter from somebody. I can't even remember who. I probably wrote myself. And I went up there and got, and I got a three month visa to go to the United States. So flew into the United States, got picked up by my brother, stayed with my brother in his apartment and, uh, started working construction, painting and decorating, which I freaking hated. I hated it, but I, I, it was some money, right? And I was making good money, but I had no green card and I overstayed my visa. And I stayed in America working construction in New York City and upstate New York for almost a year. And then my mom had to go in for, uh, she was having problems, stomach problems. And she went in for a checkup and they did exploratory surgery. And they said that she had cancer and she had six weeks to live. And I remember I called back on a pay phone because I knew she was going in for a checkup and my brother told me that it's terminal and she's going to die. And I, I, I felt my, my, it, it, I almost felt like I was going to faint and throw up and pass out all at the same time. I felt like, like, like I just, I, I was almost in denial. I could not believe it. Like my mom was my freaking hero and the tough, tough woman and fairly young. And she had ovarian cancer, right? So I immediately, got rid of my apartment, got rid of my car and flew back to Ireland. And 
to see her because it, it was terminal and it was going to be quick. Now, all the people who talk about healthcare and free healthcare and we should have free healthcare, the healthcare in Ireland was free, but it was not great. Now, it, it, don't be beating me up in the comments. Maybe it's different now, but a lot of people who have job, good jobs have their own private healthcare because the government stuff is not good. And uh, we had government healthcare, obviously, right? So she went in and she got exploratory surgery and they, they found cancer and they took a, a, a biopsy or whatever you call it from it and sent it for testing. Now, they said it was bowel cancer and it was terminal and she had six weeks to live. So they didn't do any chemo or anything on her. And I got back there and she was still in good spirits. She knew um, she was on morphine for pain. Uh, we, we kept it from all the younger kids, which I think was a mistake because they knew something was going on. But anyway, um, and then time just dragged on and on. And my sister started questioning the doctor about where is the test results? And this female doctor, she got pissed. She was like, how dare you question me? And then because they badgered her, she actually went and checked the results and it wasn't bowel cancer. It was ovarian cancer, which apparently was very treatable. But we had lost like six weeks uh, crucial six weeks when she could have been doing chemo and she may have had a chance um, because the doctor just never bothered checking the results. So um, then they started chemotherapy on her and it was killing her. It was it was really, really messing her up. They, um, and of course, I'm back in Ireland now with no job and I'm working odd jobs here and there and I'm doing crap jobs for crap money and I'm just like, good Lord. And again, I'm like, okay, the French Foreign Legion's looking real good right now. And I, 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 that six or eight months while my mom faded away was brutal and probably the worst time of my life. And it, it, it kind of sort of destroyed me and it, it really did a lot of damage. Um, she fought and fought and fought, but just wore away, wore away, wore away. She was on morphine. And then at some point, they just sent her home. And they gave a bunch of morphine to my younger sister, who was probably 24 at the time, and told her, hey, just medicate her whenever you need to. And what a responsibility, right? And it was brutal. And I had to get away. And I did a lot of work down, down, south, down the south of the country, but I was gone a lot of the time. And um, when she passed, the thing about cancer is like if you if you walk outside and get struck by lightning, you're dead. Okay, it's tragic as it is, but your family start mourning right away and they start um, to heal, right? A, a death sentence from cancer, a six-month death sentence is horrible because you don't even start mourning until it's over. And... When she passed, eventually it was a blessing and it was very, it, 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 it was horrible, but it was, we were all like, oh, thank God. Like she had no quality of life. Very, very devastating thing. And, and not much scares me, but cancer freaking scares me. Anyway, um, at a pretty low point and pretty devastated. And a guy who was, I, I was in the rangering with contacted me. And he said, hey, you want to go to Somalia and do some work? And I said, hell yeah. What's the work? <laughs> I think he said, you want to go to Africa? And I was like, hell yeah. Where? What are we doing? Um, 
so this was 1993 at this point. Um, the, the Black Hawk Down mission had happened in October 93, where, uh, I mean, I, I don't know if there's anybody who doesn't know, but uh, famine in, in Somalia, humanitarian organizations go in to feed the people. Somali militia gangs hijack the food convoys and use it for leverage. The military go in, uh, the UN, and they go in to um, to protect the food shipments. And then the, excuse me, the Somali militia start attacking the food convoys and killing soldiers. And then the American military are in there. And then the American military start going after high-value targets, uh, General Ideed and, and a bunch of other targets. Um to kind of take down the warlords, all right? Mission creep. Now, in 1993 and 94, Bill Clinton was the president, and he had no stomach for a fight at all. So Black Hawk Down happens. Um, 18 American soldiers get killed, Rangers and Delta Force mostly, and uh, a pilot, Mike Durant, gets kidnapped, gets taken. They get him back. And then Clinton pulls all the troops out. And he, what he did was he sent a message around the world that if you don't like Americans being in your country, just kill a few of them and they'll leave. And he set that precedence, right, where that now became, it was very emboldening to a lot of people. So I, in probably January, I, my dates might be a little off, but I think January 94, right? So just a couple of months after Blackout Down, uh, this guy approached me and said, hey, I got this job, man. It's a freelance security consultant. It's a contractor job, right? Um, and you work for a shipping company out of London who bid on contracts for UN supplies. So if you have, if you have a mission like in, in, in Mogadishu, let's say, or all of Somalia, those troops all over Somalia, and you, you have even the American military, they don't have cargo ships. If they want to move 50 vehicles into Mogadishu, then they will put that contract out for bid and a bunch of these logistics company will bid on it and the lowest bidder basically gets the job. And that's across the board at all the UN stuff. All, all the stuff anywhere, right? If you're moving trucks and vehicles across the world, you're going to use commercial shipping to move that stuff. Who gets that bid? Who gets that contract? The lowest bidder. The company I worked for or one of the logistics company who bid for all that work. And there was a lot of it. Now, in order to bid, you couldn't be in London. You had to be physically present in Mogadishu. So in Mogadishu, we had uh, three or four or five staff who would work all the logistics pieces and work the bids and all that kind of thing. And because it was such a dangerous place, they had a couple of security guys, right? Pipe hitters from freaking British SAS and me, basically. Um, there to protect the staff. Um, 54. Um, I, that was my job is protect shipping assets and protect the staff who worked in Mogadishu and a whole bunch of other stuff. I, I remember going down to this guy's house and getting a brief. He'd been out there already and he said that they needed another guy. Extremely dangerous place, post apocalyptic, the most dangerous city in the world at the time. Um, I was like, I'm game. Let's do this. So I packed a bag. I flew British Airways club class, which from Dublin to London, and then from London to Nairobi. 
And then in Nairobi, I spent a night in a hotel. And the next morning, I took a UN flight because no commercial flights were flying into Mogadishu at this time. I took a commercial flight into Mogadishu, landed, got off the plane with my backpack, and I got met by two big pipe-hitting Brits, um, Royal Marines, uh, SAS, freaking um, really good guys. And they handed me an AK-47 and a belt with a couple of mags on it and a pistol. And they said, let's go. And I was like, okay. So I clipped my gear on and we got in the back of a 4x4 Land uh, Toyota. And we drove right out the gate into downtown Mogadishu. And just three of us. And we maneuvered through the back streets past technicals and dead bodies and freaking chaos. And we moved into the house where we were um, going to live. And it was a really, really big house. We pulled into the yard. And I remember at the time, we had like 30 staff. Um, probably like 20 of them were guards. They were militia from the local militia. Um, the Somali National Alliance, they were, they were paid militia guards. And they and then the rest were like people to cook and clean and, and do laundry and all that staff. And we were living large. I got out of the vehicle, went in and uh, sat down. No idea what I was going to be doing. And I, I started getting the briefing on the next couple of months of my life. And it was probably the wildest, craziest six, eight, nine months, whatever it was, of my life. I'm going to kill it there. And I know people want longer podcasts, but I have stuff to do. And I can only take it in short bites. So um, I will pick it up here. I'm going to write that down. Um in Somalia, in Mogadishu, Somalia, as a contractor in 1994 when we get back. All right, guys, I appreciate you listening. If you have questions, you can hit me up and I'll try to weave them in because I'm skipping through a lot of stuff here. I'll try to weave them in as I go on and uh, try to cover as much as I can. All right, I appreciate you listening. Uh, talk to you next time. Bye.